Let's go before Him in prayer. Father God, thank You for today. Thank You for Your grace, Your mercy. Thank You for Your love. Thank You for an opportunity that we have now to come before You. God, we pray and ask that You'd work mightily and miraculously in this time. God, that You would use it to transform our hearts, to change not only our minds, but also our, our hearts, our desires in accordance with Your will. God, I pray that You would just help us to not only be hearers of the Word, but also doers of the Word. And God, give us Your grace as we endeavor to do so. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we've been working our way through the book of Galatians, and today we're going to finish up Galatians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 10 through 29, which is no small feat considering last week we looked at verses 6 through 9, and now we're going to try to tackle 10 through 29. But the reason for doing that is as we work through Galatians, you see many of the same themes again and again. And I don't want to belabor the point. I want to make sure that we understand the broad context of what Paul is saying to the churches in Galatia. What Paul is saying is he, he went to the, these churches, he founded the churches, and then he went away and false teachers had come in and they'd begun to pervert the gospel. And if you remember, when you pervert the gospel, when you change the gospel, it ceases to be the gospel at all. He said it was no longer good news. So he said, don't listen to these false teachers. Instead, make sure that you examine that what is said is in accordance with the true gospel. And Paul is helping these Galatian believers see that they're not saved by keeping the law, but that they're indeed saved by grace through faith. That they cannot keep God's law as a means to be justified before Him. This becomes evident in today's text. It became evident in last week's text and the week before, but especially in this week's text as we look at it. So with that in mind, I just want to read Galatians 3, 10-29. If you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. The righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. And he does not say, and to seeds, referring to many, but rather to one. And to your seed, that is, Christ. What I am saying is this, the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions. Having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now a mediator is not for, only one, par not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based upon law. 
But the Scripture has shut everyone up under sin so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading the hearing, and the applying of His Word. Amen. You may be seated. So I know it's a long section, but I want to remind you of what we talked about a few weeks ago when we began chapter 3. We saw that God by His grace awakens us, that He opens our eyes to the truth of the Gospel, that God by His grace saves us, that He declares us righteous, He justifies us, by His grace, and that God by His grace then in turn grows us, He sustains us, and He empowers us. That He works miracles among us and that He grows us and ultimately keeps us in Him. And that all of that is a work of grace in our lives. It's not because we earned it. Grace is unmerited favor. It's favor bestowed upon us that we didn't earn. Salvation is by grace through faith. And then last week, so we saw that, and then last week in verses 6-9, through we saw that Abraham was an example of those truths. We saw that Abraham was justified, he was declared righteous before God, not because he kept the law, because the law hadn't even been given yet. There was no law for him to keep. Abraham was justified by faith. And furthermore, Abraham's faith wasn't just intellectual assent. It was a belief that resulted in action. You see, the word faith, as the Scripture uses it, conveys the idea of reliance. conveys the idea of trust. And that's what Abraham did. He had faith that resulted in, it was belief that resulted in trust that ultimately relied on God. R.C. Sproul recently went home to be with the Lord. And if you watched any of the comments about R.C. Sproul and his ministry, uh, there were several people who were talking uh, about his ministry and sharing experiences they had with R.C. Sproul. And John Piper, in sharing about R.C., had, as he called him, R.C., uh, said that he he went to a conference one time and Dr. Sproul was talking about faith and he related faith to that of a chair. And he said that faith is not just believing that the chair exists. That yes, you, you need to believe that the chair exists, but you need to put your trust in the chair. That faith was demonstrated by sitting in the chair and believing that the chair was actually going to hold you up. And that's what faith is. That's what biblical faith is. It's not just believing in Jesus, but it's trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sin. It's trusting in what God can do for us by His grace. John Piper, rightfully so, went on to say it's also loving the chair. It's loving what God has done. Loving God for who He is and what He has done for us. So the point of last week's message was that Abraham didn't earn God's favor by keeping the law. But he believed, he placed his trust in God. He believed that God would do what He said He would do. 
And in turn, Abraham in faith left his home and he journeyed to a land he didn't know. Abraham in faith believed God when he said his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Abraham in faith believed God when he said that his descendants would be named through Isaac. And he offered him up as a sacrifice, trusting that God could raise him from the dead. You see, God by His grace opened Abraham's eyes. God by His grace saved Abraham. He declared him righteous. And God by His grace, He grew him. He sustained him. And He empowered him to be used mightily. The point I want to make is that God finishes the work He begins in us. And that 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 is God's grace in our lives. That the Christian life is not only one of being saved by grace and then working out our salvation ourselves, but instead, that yes, there is human effort, but it's God's grace pouring into us that allows us to continue in the Christian life. That He is faithful to begin to not only begin, but also finish the work that He starts in us. With that in mind, last week I, I said a phrase, and there was some confusion that was generated by this phrase. I said that it's not so much about saying a prayer or walking an aisle, but about always praying and always walking. And my point is not that we can lose our salvation. It's not that if we, can, if we cease to trust or if we have a moment of disbelief that somehow we lose our salvation. The point is that if you're trusting in the act of saying a prayer or you're trusting in the act of walking an aisle, that that's not saving faith. The saving faith is trusting in what God has done. And believing in what God has done results in change. That change is not the same for all of us. And it's not always as evident as it should be in our lives. I'll tell you, there are some weeks I struggle with this kind of thought process about God using us and sustaining us and empowering us by grace. Because there are times when I think that I need to do this in my own human effort. And I think that God's going to reward me based on my efforts, not based upon His grace. And I think, well, I've had a pretty good week battling sin this week, therefore God's going to use me mightily in the pulpit. That's, that's foolish talk. It's only by God's grace that I can stand up here, and as I stand up here, I'm further indebted to His grace. I'm further indebted to Him because He's giving me grace to do it. It's not that I'm paying God back. So we cannot, cannot ever lose our salvation. But there is a very serious warning that if we walk an aisle, we say a prayer, and there's no effectual change in our lives, then Scripture has many warnings to say, you need to persevere until the end. And Praise God for the Word, for the Scripture that says, you must persevere in order to be saved. And then also says, and God will cause you to persevere. Praise God for those two things which come together. And God says, I will carry you. You need to continue until the end firm. And I'm going to carry you. Because it's all about His grace in our lives. Hopefully that clears up a little bit about last week. This idea of always praying, always walking is not so much about us never faltering, but instead about an ongoing action in our lives that an ongoing meaning, something that continues, something that, that isn't just a one-time action, but that is an ongoing trust. It's not sitting in the chair once. It's trusting in the chair. Knowing that the chair will hold me up. That's the kind of faith that God wants us to have. Complete trust in Him. That's the kind of faith that Abraham had. So with that in mind, this topic continues and builds on this topic a little bit more this week as we will see as we look at Verses 10-29. through 
So with that in mind, let's look at the first point in our sermon outline. The first point is, number one, the reality of the law. The reality of the law. And there's two sub-points, if you will, to this first point. And first, as we think about the reality of the law, the first thing I want you to see is that the works of the law bring condemnation. The works of the law bring about condemnation. He says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. For the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. When Paul uses this term, works of the law, what I want you to see is that he's contrasting it with faith. So you have works of the law, you have faith. This contrast is clearly made in Galatians 3.5, where we read a couple of weeks ago, he says, Does he who provides you with the Spirit, who saves you, and works miracles among you, empowers you, does he do this by works of the law, or is it by faith? That these two things are mutually exclusive. This is important because we must know that when Paul uses this term, he's speaking of something that stands in opposition to faith. In other words, we should not understand works of the law as the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law was good in what it was supposed to do. When he's talking about works of the law, he's talking about trusting in our ability to keep the law, which stands opposed to faith. The Old Testament law was never meant to stand in the way of or be seen as standing in place of opposition to faith. The Old Testament law does not stand opposed to faith. The Old Testament saints were indeed saved by grace through faith. In fact, not only is the Old Testament law not meant to stand in the way of faith, just the opposite. The law was meant to strengthen faith. It was meant to point us to faith in God. We'll see that more clearly in a little bit. But for now, what I really want us to see is that when Paul uses this term, works of the law, what he's referring to is trusting in one's ability to keep the law in order to be declared righteous. In other words, it's the opposite of biblical faith, which is trusting in God's grace or His unmerited favor to be declared righteous. We might even use the term legalism. What he's saying is, This legalism stands opposed to faith. Thinking that you can somehow earn God's favor stands opposed to knowing that you cannot and that you must trust in God to do that work for you and ultimately through His Son, Jesus. This is why Paul quotes Deuteronomy 27-26 and he says, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the law to perform them, He says, if you try to live in such a way that you're trying to be justified as a keeper of the law, and you don't keep all of it, every jaw, every tittle, you'll end up being condemned. If you live trying to keep the law and you fail at one point, then you end up being cursed. And immediately in verse 11, he then quotes Habakkuk 2.4. So he quotes Deuteronomy 27.26 and says, the law doesn't justify... Unless you keep all of the law, which you can't do. And then Habakkuk 2.4, he says, he quotes that and says, the righteous man shall live by faith. In other words, he's saying, that, he's saying that being declared righteous comes not by law, but by faith. Not by law, but by faith. And that's the message again and again of Galatians. 
why in Galatians 1, as I alluded to earlier, he said, I'm, I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another gospel. It's not good news at all. It, it brings condemnation. But there are some who are distorting you and they want to lead you away from the gospel of Christ. He says, even if I or an angel from heaven comes and preaches this, this message, it's not true. Don't believe it. Why? Because they're to be accursed. It's the same idea. They're to be condemned. And they're leading you to condemnation, Galatians. Now I want to note, it's important that, to note that he doesn't say those people. right? The world, the immoral, the homosexuals, the liars, the cheaters, those people are condemned. He doesn't say that, at least not yet. He'll go on later to say that people who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, right? That if we go on practicing those things, that they don't inherit the kingdom of God. And we'll get into that later as we get later into the book of Galatians. But first, before talking about them out in the world, right? Those who reject the law of God and say it doesn't apply to them, those who think they don't need to live up to it, first, he addresses those who are moral, religious people who think they can live up to it. Those who do good things as a means of earning their salvation. Those who think that they can even keep their salvation by doing good things. So before he says, cursed are those who reject my law, he says, cursed are the self-sufficient. Cursed are the self-sufficient who pridefully think they're keeping it. That's what God is saying through the Apostle Paul. In other words... Those who think they've earned God's favor by their own good deeds are every bit as under a curse as those who outright reject His Word altogether. So we see danger in this. On the one hand, there's the danger that says, I don't care. And that's the danger we want to paint of the world. I don't care. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to do things the way I want to do them. And on the other side of the, the spectrum, and I think this is more dangerous in some respects for us as a church or for Church people is to say, I can do this. I got this. I can please God with my own strength. Both are dangerous. The picture that I want you to see is that God has told us what His holy word demands. It demands sinless perfection. There's this giant chasm between us and sinless perfection. And this giant chasm exists as though as though I need to get from here to the end of the carpet there. And a spirit of lawlessness says, I'm, I'm fine right here. spirit of lawlessness says, I'm fine. I don't need to get there anyway. I'm good where I'm at. I'm going to stay right here because I'm happy. But a spirit of legalism says, I can get there on my own. Watch me. And in trying to leap to perfection... We ultimately leap directly into a pit of death. That's why I say it's just as dangerous, maybe just as dangerous to be a member of a local church as it is to someone to be someone who never darkens the door of a church and says, I will not submit to God's law. It's just as dangerous if we think that being a member will indeed save us. If we think that by our own righteous deeds, we can somehow reach that standard which God has told us is His holy perfection. I say it's more subtle because it might lead one to believe that they're okay once they attend church or once they serve as an usher. And that was my point. Or once they preach a sermon or whatever. 
that might lead them to believe that they're okay and that they can make that leap successfully. That's not at all the case. Because the law brings about condemnation. If you don't keep every bit of the law and you're trying to live in a way that you're living up to the law, you stand condemned. So having seen the reality of the law, that the works of law bring about condemnation, let's look at the second sub-point, that the works of Christ bring about redemption. So the works of the law bring about condemnation, but the work of Christ brings about redemption. This is the glorious Gospel message. Verses 13 and 14, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. That ultimately the promise of the Spirit refers to being saved, that we might be saved through faith. The point here is that Christ redeemed us. He bought us. He purchased us. Think of a redemption center. right? I knew a guy one time who said, what are all these redemption center things? He was an intern at a church where I was serving and he said, these like religious building or institutions or something? Because like, he thought redemption, you know, you go to get bought back. Well, we buy back bottles and cans, right? And that's the point. He says, Christ redeemed us. He bought us back from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. So that we're no longer under a curse. And He did so by bearing our sin on the cross and taking the punishment we rightly deserved. He became the curse so that we wouldn't be cursed. That's the beauty of the Gospel message, folks. That we stand condemned, but the the lawkeeper, the only one who is able to keep the law, redeemed us. He brings redemption. That's why in 1 Peter, Paul says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by His wounds, you were healed. Romans 5, 8-9, he says, God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. <coughs> that the work of Christ, the perfect law keeper, brings about redemption. So that's the reality of the law. That the works of the law brings condemnation, but the work of Christ brings about redemption. So the natural question that should arise from this is why the law then? Why do we need, why was the law even, why did it even come about? And Paul addresses that in this latter section. So let's consider, having considered the reality of the law, let's consider the purpose of the law. And again, there's two subpoints. The purpose of the law, number one, is not to invalidate or annul the promise of Abraham. The purpose of the law was not to invalidate or undo the promise of Abraham. We want to see that first. He says, brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. This is verse 15. So in other words, let me use an example. Brethren, I'm speaking in human terms. Even though it's only a man's covenant, let me use a man's covenant as an example. Yet when it, was, when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. So you have a covenant, you have a contract, an agreement. Once it's been signed, you don't add conditions to it. It's binding. Even humans don't change contracts once they're signed, is what Paul is saying. So the covenant with Abraham, which is signed by God, stands. 
And the law given to Moses didn't change that contract. A contract's a contract, is what Paul is saying here. He goes on in verse 16 and says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. So he says, understand that the promises that were spoken to Abraham were spoken to him and his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, plural, as referring to many. This promise wasn't given to everyone, but rather to one. And to your seed, he says, singular, that is Christ. That the promise given to Abraham comes ultimately through Christ, is what he's saying. He clears it up in verse 17. He says, what I'm saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later, 430 years after the promise to Abraham, doesn't invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. He says it doesn't invalidate it. It doesn't nullify God's promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it's no longer based on promise. But, he says, that not being the case, God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. In other words, God granted it to Abraham by means of a promise not based on law. And the law doesn't invalidate the promise. So having seen that it doesn't invalidate the promise, that the purpose of the law is not to annul the promise of Abraham, the second sub-point I want you to see is what it is for. It is instead to point us to Christ. So it's not to nullify the promise to Abraham, but instead to point us to Christ. That's why in verse 19, he says, Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions. It was added because of sin. Paul speaks of the role of the law in Romans 7.7 7 when he says, I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said thou shalt not covet. In other words, he says, the law showed me that it was sin. If, I didn't, if the law didn't come, I wouldn't have known. So it's the law that shows us in specific ways, specific ways in which we fall short. However, the law is also meant to show us the depths of our depravity. So it's not just meant to show us specific ways in which we fall short. The law shows us the depths of our depravity. It shows us that we don't have a problem with just outward conformity. That it extends beyond that. That we have a heart problem. That's the purpose of the law as well. In other words, what I'm saying is our problem is not that merely that we haven't kept the law. For if that was the case, keeping the law would give life. That's what Paul says. If the law could give life, then life would be given through the law. But that's not the purpose of the law. Our problem, folks, is that we have rebellious hearts. And the law serves to show us that. That's what Paul is driving at here. That's what Paul is driving at in Romans 5. And you have to... Galatians and Romans fit together so nicely. They ha- you really need to study both of them and understand both of them that they oftentimes bring clarity to what... Paul is saying, Romans 5, verses 20-21, through he says, The law came in, why? The law came in so that transgression would increase. You say, wait a minute, so the law came so that I might sin more? He says, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So Paul corrects this bad thinking almost immediately and continues to correct it and says, this isn't me saying that God is the author of sin. Instead, he says, the law came in so that that transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. 
so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. See, the point is that the law reveals that our problem is bigger than our failure to do what God commanded. In other words, the law actually stirs up rebellion in us. And it reveals that our hearts want to do the opposite of what God has said. When God says, thou shalt not lust, He's not merely saying that lust is bad. And that it's both disobedient to Him and harmful to us, which it is. But He's also, when He says, thou shalt not lust, He's holding a mirror up to our heart to show us that when He says, thou shalt not lust, it reveals a rebellion in us that actually desires the opposite of what He says. Let me give you an example. If you have kids, you understand this. right? You've seen this played out if you have kids. And it's interesting that during the fellowship, I want to pick on, um, I want to pick on some of the kids in the, in the congregation, right? Because it's interesting that during the time of fellowship, that Henry came up and played the piano, right? And he's pounding on the piano keys. Because I actually used this as a sermon ex- illustration before Henry even did any of that, right? That when you tell your children, you can go anywhere in this room, but whatever you do, don't go beyond this line. Don't go beyond this line. Don't get near the piano. Don't even think about crossing that line. What is the first thing your kid is going to want to do? They want to cross the line. See, the law that you set not only shows them what is good, don't, don't cross the line. You, you told them, don't do that because I don't, I don't want you to disturb others. I don't want you to be playing the piano. But it also reveals that their problem is greater than their propensity to cross the line. The problem, our problem, is our propensity to rebel. So when God says, thou shalt not lust, we go, yeah, right? It stirs up in us a rebellion. Thou shalt not covet. It stirs up in us. It holds a mirror to us that says, coveting's not my problem. My bigger problem is that God can say anything and I say, no, but I want that. The law shows us our propensity to rebel. Paul gives examples of this all throughout Romans chapter 7, verse uh, 7-5. He says, While we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. He says the passions within us were aroused by the law. It's like the law stirred them up. And in verses 7-8, through he says, I would not have known to come to know sin except through the law. The law showed me sin, right? For I would not have known about coveting if the Lord had not said, Thou shalt not covet. We used that example earlier. And then he goes on and says, But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. It actually made coveting worse in some sense. Not that the law caused the coveting, but instead the law was a mirror that caused Paul to see how desperately he was in rebellion. That's what the law does. It shows us how we are in rebellion against God. So the speed limit does for me. I'm driving down 235, right? The problem is not my failure to keep the speed limit. The problem is not the the problem is the road is just too fun to drive 55 miles an hour on, right? When the speed limit's 45. The speed limit is not my problem. The problem is my rebellion. And that's what God's law does for us. Verse 19, picking up where we left off, or where, where we 
were last. Continuing at verse 19, he says, Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions. It was added because of sin. Having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator, mediator is one who helps parties, two parties come to an agreement. That would have been Moses with the law. Moses spoke on behalf of God, behalf of the people. He was a mediator. He spoke until the seed would come. He, he brought the law to them, pointing to the seed that is Jesus who would come, the one whom the promise had been made. See, ultimately, the law was meant to point us to Abraham's promise. It was meant to point to the seed. If you were here at Christmas Eve, you, then you remember that Bill read Genesis 3.15, which speaks of the Gospel, the promise that a seed was coming, that a descendant was coming of Eve who would crush Satan. And that is the same seed that is spoken of to Abraham. That you're going to have this descendant and that all the world's going to be blessed through this descendant. And it's the same seed that's spoken of here. Until the seed would come, that is, Jesus would come. The one whom the promise had been made. That the law was added by Moses as a mediator until that time. Now, verse 20, by the way, is difficult. I want to say that. And I don't, I don't, I'm going to kind of gloss over it quickly because there's a lot of different views on this. And I think because we're 2,000 years removed from when it was written, there's something that maybe is lost in our understanding now, I don't want to come down hard and fast on this verse, but here's what it says. Now, a mediator is not for one party only. In other words, it's an agreement between two parties, and the law was exactly that. The law was a, me- was a contract between two parties. Deuteronomy 4.40 said, You shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I'm giving to you today, so that it may go well with you. If you keep his law, you will be blessed. It was a two-party agreement, right? It was a mediator, and that was Moses. And then he says, whereas God, now a mediator is for one party only, whereas God is only one. I think what he's saying is that the promise given to Abraham wasn't like the law in that it wasn't a two-party agreement. It was a one-way street. You'll be blessed. You'll be blessed. A seed is coming. The descendant is coming. The one who will conquer sin and death. The one who will save you by grace. Who will save his people. The one who allows you to have faith. That one is coming. He's the one that all this promise points toward. And it's one-sided. It's not based on your obedience. You will be blessed. The NLT captures verse 20 quite nicely, I think, when it says this. It says, Now a mediator is helpful if more than one party must reach an agreement. But God, who is one, did not use a mediator when He gave His promise to Abraham. In other words, the promise to Abraham stands far and above that of the, of the law given to Moses. The contract with Moses was a two-way street to show that it couldn't be kept. Yeah, I'll bless you if you keep the law, but guess what? You ain't going to keep it. That's the point. So you need the promise given to Abraham. Because that's not nullified by this law. So continuing in verse 20, he says, Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would have been given through the law. But the Scripture has shut everyone up under sin so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody. The law held us to a standard we couldn't keep is what he's saying. Being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law became our tutor to lead us to Christ. It pointed us to Christ. Why? So that we might be justified by faith. 
In other words, the law was never meant to justify us. It only condemns us. It's meant to show us of our need for a Savior. It serves as a schoolmaster teaching us of our need for grace. So by way of review, we see the reality of the law, that the works of the law produce condemnation, but the work of Christ brings about redemption. And we see the purpose of the law, that it's not to invalidate the promise given to Abraham, but instead it's to point us to Christ. It's to show us our need for the promise to Abraham. You can't keep this contract. You fail. So it's to point us to the one to whom the promise is about. In other words, the law was meant not to contradict the promise, but to point us to the promise. So the big question is, so in light of that, right? how do we apply all of this? How do we take this message and then apply it? We see the application in verses 25 through 29. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. Now that faith has been made real, we're no longer under a tutor. For you're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For you were all baptized into Christ and have clothed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise, not according to law. You're heirs according to the promise if you belong to Christ. That the only way to the promise of Abraham is through Christ Jesus, his seed. So, in light of this, we have a new relationship to the law. As verse 25 says, we're no longer under a tutor. We've been baptized, that's immersed into Christ. We've been clothed with Christ. He's in us and we're in him, is what that's saying. We're no longer under the burden of trying to keep the law. Because we know we can't. Regardless of whether you're a Jew or a Greek, regardless of whether you're a slave or free, regardless of whether you're a man or a woman, regardless of whether you're a fisherman or a salesman, right? That's the point. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done or what your background is. You can't keep the law. There's only one way to be saved, and that's by grace through faith. This doesn't mean, however, that we reject the law, nor does it mean that we try to keep the law. So we don't reject it, we don't throw it away, but we don't try to keep it by our own fleshly efforts. Instead, it means that we agree with the law. This new relationship to the law says, yes, the law is good. I delight in your law, as the psalmist said. But we see our own, ability to, our own inability to keep it. We see our own inability to keep it but yet we let the law have its perfect result. And that is driving us to our knees and crying out to God for mercy and grace. And the beauty of the Gospel is that when we do that, He's there with us. He lifts us up. By His grace, He grows us. He empowers us. He strengthens us. That He, he works in us. He sustains us. So if you ever hear me say, that we're saved by grace and somehow we need to keep ourselves in Christ, don't ever, please don't ever hear me say that. Instead, what I'm saying is God's grace has its perfect result in us that as we cry out to God for mercy and grace that He's faithful. 
He will carry us to completion. This new relation to the law means that we agree with Paul who said in Romans 7, I will joyfully concur with the law of God. He said, I joyfully agree with the law in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body. A law which wages war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. I'm still struggling with with sin. And he says, wretched man that I am. I agree with the law, but now I see I can't keep the law. I tried to keep the law before, but now I have this new relationship to it and I know I can't keep it. I'm a wretched man. Who will set me free from the body of this death, he cries out. And then in verse 25, he says, thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. That is our mantra, folks. Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus, our Lord. The one who sets us free from this body of death. The one who by His grace awakens us to the truth of the Gospel. Who helps us see that we can't keep the law. But the one who declares us righteous, the one who saves us, declares us righteous by His grace. But the one who also by His grace, He grows us, He sustains us, and He empowers us. So let's lift up the beauty of the Gospel. And as we do, we know that God's work will have its perfect result in us. Let's pray. Father God, thank You for today. Thank You so much for Your love. Thank You for Your mercy and Your grace. God, we know that we have not any ability to keep the law in and of ourselves. We know that any good that we do in law-keeping, that if any victory we have over covetousness or lust, it's because of the grace that You pour down upon us. God, we praise You that that grace comes as we cry out in faith saying, Lord, I can't, but You can. God, I pray that we would be a people who would have a new relation to the law. That we would cry out to You, Lord, I need You. Lord, who will set me free from this body of death? Lord, I agree with Your law, but I cannot keep it. And as we do, that we would also cry out, thanks be to God. Thanks be to You. Through Jesus Christ. The one who by His grace has opened our eyes to the truth of the Gospel. The one who by His grace has saved us. And the one who grows and sustains and empowers us day by day. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.